We've worshipped in song, now let's worship in the reading of God's Word. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. If you need the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 1165. And we have worshipped in song, and now we get to hear God speak to us directly through His Word. Here in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son to rescue us from our sins. And not only to rescue us from our sins, but to give us the free gift of your own righteousness. To be able to stand here knowing that the debt we owed was freely paid by your son on the cross and proven by his resurrection from the dead. To know, Lord, that the righteousness that your holiness demands from each of us, born of Adam, has been given to us and supplied to us by the obedience of your Son in life and in death and now exalted to the right hand of your throne. And so, Lord, we come here knowing that we approach you not on the basis of our good deeds, our righteousness, our religiosity, our good intentions, but, Lord, we come before you by the blood of your son that has covered all our sins and by the righteousness that you have given to us. And so, Lord, let us be thankful and let us boast not in ourselves, but boast in you. On this Memorial Sunday, Lord, as we think of the death of men and women who sacrificed the ultimate price, their very own blood, so that we would have this freedom, a freedom of religion, a freedom of of a democracy, a republic. Lord, we remember the greatest death of all, the death of death in the death of Christ, 
your son. And so we are joyous, thankful. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to your people today through your word and through our pastor. May we be a people who are not only hearers of the word, Lord, but may we be doers also, not only today, but throughout the week. We pray these things in his name for your glory. Amen. Don't waste your life. Make account for the glory of God. That is Paul's personal testimony. That is Paul's passionate plea here in Philippians chapter 3. And so let's begin with this question. What will you have to show for your life when you stand before Jesus Christ? A college degree? A good job? Money in the bank, lots of friends, a successful career, the praise of others, a, a box full of awards, promotions at work, a happy retirement, the list can go on. And if that's all that you got to show for your life, then you really don't have much going for you. Sooner than you think, you will be lying in a box six feet underground with grass growing over your head, or you will be cremated with your ashes in a vase sitting on some shelf. And all the things of this life won't matter at all. Someone else will have your money. Someone else will replace you at your job. Your fame will fade away. Your glory will disappear. And everything you own will eventually belong to someone else. And you will eventually be forgotten, except by those people who happen to stumble on your gravestone 100 for years from now and might say, I wonder who this person is. We, we live in a culture today that is deeply committed to one's personal comfort, one's personal comfort and even safety in this life. After all, if this life is all there is, then it it makes sense to make it as comfortable and as pleasurable as long as possible. Get more. Get better possessions. Build larger savings accounts to protect yourself. Avoid risk at all costs. Maximize reward and live your best life now. This is success according to our culture. What's sobering, though, is that this perspective, this worldview has permeated the people of God, even myself at times, me, you, our families, our church, Therefore, as Christ followers, we need to seriously think about this particular question. What will you have to show for your life when you stand before God? Evidently, the Apostle Paul wrestled with this question. And he evaluated the entire direction of his life before and after he met Jesus Christ. Paul's life, some of you might remember, might know, his life was radically changed when Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light on the road to Damascus. And in a flash, Paul's whole world was turned upside down. He discovered that everything he thought that was so important was now meaningless. It was worthless when compared to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so here's what we're going to see this morning today in Paul's own personal 
personal testimony and even his passionate plea for us here today. Notice this in your notes coming on the screen behind me. Basically, the overarching theme and idea is this, don't waste your life. Because Paul is now telling us that the life that counts for God's glory loses all to gain Christ as their treasure. This was Paul's conclusion after his encounter with Jesus Christ. And now, looking back over his life, he writes here in verse 7. It's like we have his own diary, his own personal journal that he's writing to the church at Philippi for It's now recorded for us even today to gain insight into his personal life. And he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now this word count, as we learned last Sunday, it is the key word in chapter 3, or one of the key words. It's repeated three times in verses 7 and 8. And it means to assess. It means to evaluate. And the words loss here and gain are accounting terms. Which means Paul is doing some spiritual accounting as he evaluates what should be placed in the loss column and what belongs in the gain column in his life. You see, Paul had a number of personal treasures that he once considered to be significant gains in his life. But it's now since regarded those treasures as loss. Why? Because for Paul, the only treasure that is worth gaining is Jesus Christ. And the only life worth living is the life that counts for the glory of God. And so what I want us to do here this morning is simply lay out before you, kind of lay out, if we can use accounting terms, Paul's spreadsheet of losses and gains. And I pray here that you will see that the life that counts for God's glory loses all, is willing to lose all in order to gain Christ as their treasure. So number one, the first thing we learn about Apostle Paul here is to count as loss the many treasures of the wasted life. Count as loss the many treasures of the wasted life. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 and 3 here in chapter 3. And we saw that this is the starting point for making your life count, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. He says, look out for those dogs and remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Paul warned the Philippian believers against a group of false teachers that were known as the Judaizers who promoted a Jesus plus something you do kind of spirituality in order to earn favor with God, in order to be right with God. It wasn't Jesus only for the Judaizers. In this case, it was Jesus plus circumcision. It was Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. They were trusting in the flesh, in their own works, in their good works for salvation. And Paul basically says to them, look out for those dogs. Man, that stuff will suck the joy right out of your journey. And you will end up wasting your life if you go that direction. Remember who you are, Paul says. 
Remember, you are a saint in Jesus Christ. You are a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why, Paul says, we worship the Lord first and foremost. And we boast about Jesus Christ most. And we trust in ourselves least. And what Paul writes next now is nothing less than a showdown of religious credentials with the Judaizers. Look what he says in verse 4. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Paul has just said, put no confidence in the flesh. And now he reflects back. He's showing them, this is what will happen if you do so. I used to live that. Been there, done that. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so the Judaizers appealed to their impressive Jewish credentials. And so Paul, what he does now, he now flashes his own credentials. It's like he pulls his badge out of his back pocket and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, here's my credentials. You might call this some first century trash talking between Paul and the Judaizers. Paul calls out these pompous false teachers and basically says, if anyone here thinks he has anything that can match what I've got, when it comes to self-righteousness, I challenge him to a showdown. And I guarantee you, I will smack him down with my religious credentials. That is, in our vernacular today, that's what Paul is saying. Paul's point in doing all this is to show the Philippian believers, and now us even today, the emptiness of, of such fleshly confidence and to remind us that self-righteousness can't save anyone. Paul offers. He offers his own spiritual autobiography here as a case study in two ways of trying to get right with God. You have human achievement and you have Christ achievement. And each road leads to radically different destinations. And Paul could testify from his own life that the road to self-righteousness or the road of self-righteousness advocated by this group called the Judaizers, listen, it leads to a wasted life. And Paul also found that trusting in Christ's achievement, Christ's work on the cross, it leads to a life that counts for the glory of God. And so Paul shares now his own personal story to show us God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul had plenty to boast about. He he lists it for us here in verses 5 and 6. His resume opens with credentials related to his birth as a Jew and credentials that are related to his own religious achievement as a Pharisee. But don't miss what he says about all his credentials. His treasures... Look what he says again in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, that is my religious credentials, my treasures, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so what Paul does is he now gives a list of credentials that he himself could boast about, things he treasured most in life, and then he says he now counts them as one big loss. 
In fact, notice it quickly, the treasures that Paul counted as lost. Treasures of this wasted life. Number one is family heritage. That's what he means when he says circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Paul is telling us that he had been born into a strong Jewish family that honored the Old Testament scriptures. His parents followed the Jewish law that required circumcising baby boys on the eighth day after their birth. This means that Paul wasn't a Gentile who was converted into Judaism later in life. No, he was born Jewish. More than that, his parents were full-blooded Jews. This made Paul an Israelite by birth. Paul is basically saying here, I'm not only a physical descendant of Abraham, but I'm a direct descendant through Jacob, whom God named Israel. And by identifying himself as an Israelite, Paul is stressing the absolute purity of his Jewish heritage. Nobody could match that. Number two is social status. That's what he means when he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, the tribe of Benjamin was the, was the prestigious tribe of the nation of Israel. Of the 12 sons of Jacob, Benjamin was the only one who was born in the promised land. It was the tribe of Benjamin and Judah who stayed faithful to King David when all the other 10 tribes were turning away in rebellion. And it was from the tribe of Benjamin that gave the nation of Israel its very first king. Remember who that was? His name was Saul. And what was Paul's given name before God changed it? Anybody remember? Saul. And so it is possible, we don't know this for sure, but it's possible that Paul might have been named after the very first king of Israel that came from this tribe. And so when Paul says also that I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's saying, listen, you cannot match my status as a Hebrew. Paul's pointing out that he was not only born to Hebrew parents from the elite tribe of Benjamin, but he also spoke Hebrew when millions of Jews at that time had long forgotten the language of their fathers. Paul, in other words, he was as Jewish as you could get. He spoke the language. He had the connections. He had the name. His pedigree was impeccable. And then number three, we list biblical knowledge. That's what Paul's referring to as to the law, a Pharisee. You see, Paul was not just a nominal Jew. He was what we would say a practicing Jew of the highest regard. He was a Pharisee. And this is where we have to be a bit careful because we have a negative impression of Pharisees, or at least we tend to. We tend to always think of them as hypocrites, and in many ways they were, which is why Jesus was always calling them out in the Gospels. But in Paul's day, that was not necessarily how Pharisees were were viewed. They were extremely well-respected. Because the Pharisees knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and they strived to follow it. They were known for their love of the law, their strict interpretations of the law, and even their diligent obedience to the law. Paul himself, he even studied under one of the leading Pharisees of the day. In other words, Paul belonged to a morally superior group of Jews. He was a Pharisee. And then we find number four, religious activity. It's what he's referring to when he says, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. And so Paul wasn't just a Pharisee in name only. Listen, 
He was zealous in his religion, and he backed it up with religious activity. In fact, some of us remember he was so zealous that he went out persecuting the church. You read about this in the book of Acts. He was willing to hunt down anyone who tampered with his religion, especially Jewish Christians who turned against Judaism. And so he was on a mission, so much so that he made this special trip to the city of Damascus to root out those Jewish Christians there and to teach them a lesson. Paul is saying, in other words, to these Judaizers here, listen, there is nobody who has more passion in living out their religion than me. And then number five, we come to his moral lifestyle. When he says, as to the righteous under the law, I am blameless. It's almost as if Paul is saying, do you want to see somebody who follows all the rules and keeps all the laws? He says, look right here. Nobody can compare with me. He's doing some modern, not modern day, but some ancient day trash talking to these Judaizers. Because when it came to obeying the law, there was not a fault to be found in Paul. If there was a rule, he kept it. That's not to say that he was sinless, but blameless. That is, he never slacked off in his observance of the law. In other words, when it came to living out the Jewish laws, Paul never took a day off. When it came to Judaism, Paul was the man and nobody could boast more than him. If anyone had reason to boast in his own self-righteousness, it was Paul. If there was a religious pedestal nearby, Paul deserved to be put on it. Nobody had a bigger trophy case than Paul. He had it all. And so here, what you see is Paul's list of all the many treasures of the wasted life. Family heritage. Social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, and even a moral lifestyle. And if you look at that list of treasures, what do all these things have in common? They're all good things, are they not? Every one of them. I mean, family heritage, that's not bad. I'm proud of my family heritage. I appreciate my family heritage. I'm sure some of you do. Maybe others of you don't. That's okay. But family heritage is not a bad thing. Listen, social status is not necessarily a bad thing either in and of itself. Biblical knowledge, well, that's good. We would all raise our hand to that. Religious activity, moral lifestyle, those are all good things as well. All these things Paul listed are good things. And what we need to realize about them is that it wasn't bad things that were keeping Paul from Jesus. It was good things that were keeping Paul from Jesus. And this is so important for us to see even today. Don't miss here the gravity of what Paul is saying. The danger is that you can have all these, quote, good things, all these good treasures... You can have a good family life, a good social status at school and at work and in the neighborhood. You can even have biblical knowledge. You can even teach the word of God. On top of that, you can be active in church. You can be zealous in religious ministry and activities. And then to top it all off, you can lead a decent, moral, upstanding life. And the danger is you can have all these things and more and still not have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
And when you come to the end of your life, it will be wasted. Wasted. When you stand before God, you won't have anything to show. Paul is telling us that all these things are the treasures of the wasted life if you don't have Jesus Christ. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, if you have never come to that place in your life where you have acknowledged, I am a sinner in need of a Savior because I can't save myself. I am dependent on what Jesus Christ, his work, his achievement on the cross in his resurrection. If you want to make your life count for God's glory, then like Paul, count as loss. The many treasures of the wasted life. But don't stop there. We must also, number two, count as gain the only treasure of the life that counts. Listen again what Paul says in verse 7. Look at it. He says, but whatever gain I had. And we just saw Paul had a lot of gains. He had a lot of treasures. He says, I counted them as loss. Why? For the sake of... Of Christ, All these treasures that Paul listed are just lost. And in case you didn't hear him the first time, he now says it again in verse 8. Look at it. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he says it a third time for those of us who aren't paying attention. He says it a third time for added emphasis at the end of verse 8. Look at it. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so here's the question. What is the only treasure of the life that counts? Paul has made it clear, loud and clear. He is telling us that the life that counts for the glory of God treasures Christ above everything that this world has to offer. Three different times Paul mentions Jesus Christ as his only treasure. You know what he does in the rest of this chapter here? In fact, all the way to verse 11, he just repeats and talks about Jesus Christ. He just keeps talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Over and over again, Paul is telling us that Christ is far greater than anything this world has to offer to you. It pales in comparison to the greatness of Christ and to the joy that Christ brings to our life in this journey today. For Paul, Jesus isn't just a ticket to heaven. Jesus is his only treasure on earth. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21, which we have looked at, we have repeated several times, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Paul's assessment here, here's, notice this, here's his uh, accounting assessment of his life. And it's like Paul took a piece of paper and he draws a line down the middle of it. And on one side, he lists all the many treasures of this world. And then above those treasures, he writes the word loss. And then on the other side of the line, he simply lists Jesus Christ. And he writes above the word Christ, gain. That's his accounting ledger. Paul really believes. He truly believes it. He lived it out that the only treasure of the life that counts is Christ and everything else is rubbish in comparison to Jesus Christ. 
James Boyce put it this way. Paul came to the point where he opened his ledger book. He looked at what he had accumulated by inheritance and by his efforts, and he reflected on all these things that actually kept him from Christ. He then took the entire list and he placed it where it belonged, under the list of liabilities. He called it loss, and under assets, he wrote Jesus Christ alone. Now, that is a very radical, different way to think and live. It's a radically different Christianity than the one that is so prevalent in our culture and even in some of our churches across America. And we here this morning, we we desperately need to feel the weight of all this. We need to feel it, emotionally feel it, feel the weight of Paul's statement that he's saying here. In fact, the word that Paul uses for rubbish would have just shocked the Philippian believers. When somebody stood to read this letter, and perhaps it was Epaphroditus who came back. Maybe it was Timothy. We don't know who. Whoever stood to read this letter that Paul's just journaling now, and when they read it and they get to this part where they use the word rubbish, they would have been aghast, shocked that Paul would write such a crude word that is translated in some Bibles as dung. It means excrement. It means dog poop. In other words, Paul considered everything else to be a pile of dung. We might say it crudely, a pile of dog poop compared to having Christ. This cuts to the heart, doesn't it? Do I treasure Christ above everything that this world has to offer? Even to the point that by comparison, everything else is rubbish or dog poop, dumb. I read what Paul says here. And it reveals two things about me. Perhaps the same is true for you. First, it reveals how much I still cherish some of the treasures of this world. My heart, if I'm honest, is still captivated by the things I can buy. I'm still enamored with the esteem or the praise of people. I find myself getting caught up in the pride of my accomplishments and definitely all the comforts of living here in America. And if I'm honest, the temperature of my heart, it runs a little too warm towards the treasures of this world and not nearly hot enough for the treasures of Christ. But it also reveals the second thing about me, and that is my desperate need to simply cry out to God in prayer, Lord, make this true of me, what Paul writes here. I want my life to count for God's glory, Lord, so help me here. Give me the grace to treasure Christ above everything else that this world has to offer. Notice what we gain here in Christ. Notice that in Christ, Paul says that we have found something that is worth losing everything for. You know what our problem is? It's my problem and it's your problem. Here is our problem for most Christians. We we want to gain Christ. In fact, we will even verbalize that. We'll express that. I, I want to gain Christ, but we want to do it without losing anything. But it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. 
Let me show you some examples of this. Just consider the Old Testament dude by the name of Job. Some of you remember Job. Here's a guy who lost it all, everything. All of his possessions, all that he owned, all of his wealth, and even his family, and his health was taken out from underneath him. The only person that is left is a nagging wife who curses him. But through it all, Job says in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Consider Moses. Moses, as you know, he could have had all the treasures of Egypt. And in that day, that was quite a bit. But instead, we are told in Hebrews chapter 11... That by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. And, of course, consider Epaphroditus right here in the book of Philippians. Remember this guy? We studied him already in our series. In Philippians 2.25, Paul says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. And in case you missed the message about Epaphroditus, here's a little background. Paul is writing from prison in the Philippian church has sent Epaphroditus to Paul to encourage him and to care for him and to bring him resources so that he could survive in prison under house arrest. And now look what Paul says about about Epaphroditus in verses 26 and 29. He says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. For I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. And then here is the kicker, the top it all off. Paul says in verse 30, For he, Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so like Epaphroditus... Man, let us believe with all our hearts that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Consider Jim Elliott. Some of you know that name. He was a missionary in Ecuador who was killed by the Anca Indians. Years earlier, he wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Consider the life of Charles Thomas Studd otherwise known as C.T. Studd. He was an English missionary who faithfully served in China, India, and Africa. His motto was this, and I quote, If Jesus is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for the sake to make him known. This was a guy who was very, very wealthy. But when he came to faith in Christ, get this, blows me away. He sold all of his possessions and gave away all of his inheritance and went off to China as a missionary. And after 10 years, a wife and four children later, he came back to England and prepared for his next mission. You know where he went? India, where he penetrated unreached peoples with the gospel. He came back when he was older, though, not to retire, but to then go to Africa 
And he said this, and I quote, This is the most unevangelized place in the world today, and I want to go and proclaim Christ. He risked his life for the sake of Christ because Christ was his treasure. But even in the early 1900s, he faced a lot of resistance from the church. In fact, you know what the church was saying about him? That he was risking too much to go as a missionary. So he wrote this declaration as a sort of rallying cry, and I'm going to read it verbatim, word for word, I'm going to quote it. Believing that further delay would be sinful, some of God's insignificance and nobody's. That's how he thought of himself. I'm just an insignificant, I'm just a nobody in Christ. Have decided on certain simple lines, according to the book of God, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. Too long we have been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should men such as us fear. Before the whole world, before the sleepy, lukewarm, thankless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him and we will do it with His joy. Unspeakable, singing, aloud in our hearts kind of joy. We would a thousand times sooner die trusting in our God than living trusting in man. And when we come to our position, we realize that the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign is in sight because we will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and petty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith in works for Jesus Christ. There's a guy who counted as lost everything in order to count as gain Jesus Christ. He lived it out. And like Paul in these other examples, may we here in the 21st century, may us here at LifeBridge especially, those of us who claim to be Christ followers, may we live in such a way that our lives count for the glory of God, knowing that in Christ we have found something that is worth losing everything for. Paul also tells us, though, number two, that in Christ... We are counted righteous. Woohoo! Man, we ought to say hallelujah to that. In Christ we are counted righteous. And we say, that was pathetic. In Christ we are counted righteous. And we say to that, hallelujah. hallelujah. Because when you understand what that means, you can't help but rejoice in that and shout about that. And this righteousness, get a load of this. It is not your own righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. But it is a gift of God that is received through our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's whole point here is to warn us against placing our confidence in our own righteousness, thinking somehow that that will save us from hell in the judgment of God. Because it won't. Here's the problem. Only righteous people are going to heaven. Only righteous people can stand before a holy God and dwell in His presence. And yet none of us are righteous here, right? None of us possess the righteousness that God requires. Paul tells us 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so that on the basis of our own righteousness, on the basis of our own good works, we earn what? We earn the wrath of God, not His pleasure. We earn judgment and condemnation, not heaven. We need another source of righteousness. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is called good news. So how can the righteousness that God requires of us now be received? How do we obtain it? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 9, look at it, and be found in Him. There's your secret. Who's Him? Christ. So be found in Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. The day Christ returns, be found in Christ. In fact, this is one of Paul's favorite terms, in Christ, in Christ in us. It's a two-way thing. Paul loves this term, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, he continues, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Theologians call this, if I can use this word, imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness righteousness. This is the opposite of a works-based righteousness or what we call oftentimes a self-righteousness. Paul says that works-based righteousness, self-based righteousness, he says, listen, that is rubbish. That's dumb. In your backyard, if you have a dog and you step in a pile of poop and it's gross and mushy, and you're like, yeah, that's what Paul's calling your righteousness, your self-righteousness. This is why we need God's righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. What a glorious exchange we have going on here. Christ received our punishment Though he never deserved it. Though he never sinned. And we received in return, what? His righteousness, though we did not deserve it. And as a result, Paul says that we are now found in Christ. That means that God sees us through the righteousness of Christ and not our sinfulness. And Paul says that this righteousness is a gift from God that is received through faith. You know what that means? You can't earn it. It means you can't work for it. And it also means you don't deserve it. None of us do. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. In his amazing grace, God gave us his only son, Jesus Christ, to live and die for law-breaking people like us so that we might be saved. And how do we receive this righteousness? Paul tells us that it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that means that salvation does not depend on your family heritage. That means your salvation doesn't depend on your social status and how many likes you get on Facebook and Instagram. Doesn't depend on your biblical knowledge. Doesn't depend on your religious activity. Doesn't depend on your moral lifestyle. It depends on faith alone in Christ alone. That's what Paul is saying here. In fact, Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. A verse that we have repeated several times throughout this series. Where it says, for by grace 
you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. That is, they can't boast in their flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. It's another way of Paul saying the same thing. So, as we come to the end here. Don't boast in, don't trust in your own righteousness. It will lead you to a wasted life. It will suck the joy right out of your journey. We boast in and we trust in what Christ has done for us. Do you realize Jesus Christ has given you, he's provided for you everything that you need to be right with a holy God. And to have joy in the journey. So treasure Jesus now above everything this world has to offer. In Christ, we have found something worth losing everything for. Count as loss the many treasures of the wasted life and count as gain the only treasure of the life that counts. Listen, I don't know about you. I know most of you. I know where a handful of you are, spiritually speaking. All I can speak about is my own personal life. And I don't know about you, but when I come to the end of my life, I don't want to have the word wasted written across the top. Man, I want to come to the end of my life knowing that it counted for the glory of God. I hope and I pray that that is your heart's desire as well. That becomes your passion. I want to say with Paul, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And if that's your heart's desire, if God is speaking to you right now in this moment, pricking your heart and tugging at you, that that would be your desire. And you may not even know what that all means. You may not even know, I'm here, but God wants me to be here. It doesn't matter. Right now, this is where it means. This is your heart's desire. And if that's you, would you bow your heads with me and would you pray this prayer? Right now, look at it in your notes. God, even if it costs me everything, don't let me waste my life. With your grace, help me to make my life count for your glory. And so with all of our heads bowed, I want to give us a moment here to pray that. For those of you who are willing, for those of you where God is speaking to you, he is calling you, he is pulling at your heart, would you cry out to God in your heart in prayer and pray this prayer right here. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you for the greatness of Jesus Christ. And we honor him as the one who paid it all. He paid the price of our sins so that we might know you. And so help us, Lord. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your power to count as loss the treasures of this world that surround us, that tempt us, that pull us in, and to count as gain the treasure of Jesus Christ 
so that our lives will count for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to continue on with me in the journey through Philippians next Sunday as we continue here in Philippians chapter 3. And I also want to encourage you uh, to be faithful in your worship of the Lord through your giving. Your giving, it really honors the Lord. I know I say that probably every other Sunday, but it is true. It honors the Lord, and it fuels our mission here at LifeBridge. It funds our ministries here at LifeBridge and Well. And so your giving, your faithful giving in tithes and offerings is so appreciative, along with your faith promise, which funds our missions side of our budget, and it allows us to support numerous missionaries across the globe here in helping them take the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And so we appreciate your faithfulness, especially most of you give online. Uh, And if you're not, you're welcome to give in person here, obviously. You can do that as you leave, drop your gift uh, in the offering box back there at the Welcome Center. And, uh, And so thank you again. But perhaps you are here in need. And uh, listen, we'd love the opportunity to help you, whether it's with financial assistance, food assistance, just reach out to our church office and let us know your situation and how we might be able to help you. I leave you with these words from no less, or no other, I should say, than the Apostle Paul again, where he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. This is our prayer for you. Pastor Chris and I, we pray this for you in different words, in different ways. But this is our prayer for our church, that our God make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, in you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.